0: Thanks, everybody, for being here. I look forward to our discussion today on the Song of Songs. So, when I uh, thought about doing the wisdom literature, it, um, the way it's categorized, it includes Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. The Song of Songs is, I guess, technically not in it, but uh, it seems like it fits in there. It's associated with Solomon. Um, like the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. So, and uh, I was, I hadn't really thought about or looked into the Song of Songs in a long time, but, um, so I was a little freaked out by it. But it, it turns out, it, uh, and I'm thankful for your prayer for discernment what to say. <laughs> I was fully uh, aware. <laughs> <laughs> um so it's, it's going to be fun, it's going to be fun to discuss, and I've enjoyed looking into it a little bit more. Um, so we're going to watch, uh, there is a viral project video on this, which is going to be helpful to give us all a, a good overview of the book. And um, I'm going to pause the video, it's about six minutes, I'm going to pause it at least one time, and maybe a couple of times, just to, so we can talk some more about some of the things it brings up. And then I eventually want us to get to uh, a discussion of the history of how this has been interpreted and how the church has had difficulty managing (laughs) the book. Um, And I I think that's a really interesting thing to think about and to discuss uh, where we are today. So uh, this is the NIV on the left and the NAS New American Standard Bible on the right. And so it is attributed, I mean, it's called Solomon's Song of Songs. Uh, So sometimes it's called Song of Solomon, but it can also be called the Song of Songs. Um, And it's very, I don't know, it's physical. It's a physical book. So uh, we're going to discuss that. Um, But So let's start with this video and then... I'm going to pause it after it gets to the authorship, and we'll discuss, and then we'll come back to
1: the video. The Song of Songs. It's a well-known but not so well-understood book of the Bible. It's eight chapters of love poetry. And while there is an introduction and a conclusion, the book doesn't have any kind of rigid literary design and that's because it's a collection of poems. They're not meant to be dissected or taken apart, they're meant to be read as a flowing whole and simply enjoyed. The first line of the book tells us that it's the Song of Songs, which is a Hebrew idiom, like the Holy of Holies or the King of Kings. It's a Hebrew way of saying the greatest thing, so this is the greatest song of all songs. Then we're told in the first line that this Song of Songs is of Solomon, which could mean that he is the author. His name does begin the book, after all. But as you read the poems, you discover that the main voice is that of a woman, called the Beloved. And while there is also a male voice, it does not seem to be Solomon's. Solomon is mentioned a couple times in the poems, but he's never a speaker. And you do have to admit, Solomon is a very odd candidate as the author of this book, given the fact that he had 700 wives.
2: <laughs> so
1: the In the Song of Songs, they are the only ones in the world for each other. Uh, so the of Solomon likely means in the wisdom tradition of Solomon. He was known for his wisdom, his poetry, his love of learning about every part of life. And Solomon became the father of wisdom literature in Israel. And so his legacy is here carried on through a collection of love poems that explores the human experience of love and sexual desire. The opening poem introduces us to the basic theme of this. Okay, so let me just pause there for
0: a minute because, um, as I was reading the the text, Song of Solomon. I mean, it depends on which translation you're reading, but it, it seems like it's Solomon's writing it, or somebody's writing it about being in love with Solomon, or so. But. Um, and a lot of it has to do with with translation issues. So even at the very beginning, um, so the NIV does a good job, and depends on which year of NIV's publication that you're reading. So it may say here where it says she, which I I, I, I like that. The one I was reading just said beloved, and so it kind of outlines and that's not in the text itself it's their editorial decision to try to break the the song apart but um so she or beloved and then the other one was lover which i think they'll put the he so it was hard for me to keep the beloved and the lover which one's which so it's better to do she and he um and even in the nasb they put the bride as as the she um but there's this verse in verse 4 that says in the NIV, let the king bring me into his chambers, which makes it sound like it's it's uh, written by one of Solomon's harem, looking forward to, to being with him. Uh, but there's another way of translating that that says the king has brought me into his chambers. And so there's... There's two different ways of reading the song. One it I mean, it's definitely associated with Solomon and the female character in the book is one of Solomon's harem in some sense. The question is, is she writing this or is the writer, is it positive towards Solomon? Or is Solomon kind of the negative figure that's kind of keeping her from her... True love and that's that's the difficulty and it gets down to very details of translation I look a little bit into that verse and it's, it has to do with three Hebrew words and how they're pointed and it's does anybody know Hebrew in here Parker's <laughs> not in here listen, I would I could share the details with him but um, listen, I don't understand the details they're very difficult so, but it's, it's key to how you interpret the book. So, there's going to be, we're going to have to allow for some question about exactly how this goes, but um, so if it is Solomon, you know, it's just he's not a, a great example, it doesn't seem like, of, you know, one man, one woman for life, which is a traditional biblical story. Um, 700 wives and 300 concubines um, so maybe if you want to take it as a traditional Solomon maybe there was one of those that was true love uh, and, and it makes me think in our day and age too there probably are some interpretations of song of songs that are more polyamorous I mean if, I don't I'm not aware of those, but it wouldn't surprise me that, that some people are going to take this and kind of say, oh, look, here's an example of polyamory in the, in the Bible. Um, but that's, uh, so there is a, I think the majority interpretation of modern interpreters is to say Solomon is in the book, but he's not a positive character in the book, and it's really somebody in Solomon's <coughs> theorem who had or... It, you know, maybe had a husband or not? not they're not married but a fiancé or something and she's. is kind of keeping her from that um, anyway questions or thoughts what do you guys think about that uh, authorship I think it must be hard
2: enough to teach this and I'm not going to be, give you a lot of
3: questions <laughs> <laughs> well I don't know if anybody has some so if we're looking at authorship and the, you know, if it's like the best sets of, of music here. Yeah. The, and maybe jumping the, the gun here, but I know that s- growing up there was always this idea that this was the relationship of us and the church. Yeah. You know, it was, it, heaven forbid it be about, you know, the desires <laughs> of the man and woman. And so, I wonder if maybe that gave, because we thought that way, maybe that did give credence to it was us and Solomon. Yes, yes. Whereas, if we did interpret it, if we did not, if we removed the baggage of right. sex, of how, you know, a scripture of right. having sex, it would be easier for us to understand that this is a negative thing towards Solomon. Right. Exactly.
0: That all goes hand in hand together. So, if it's, if it's an allegory about Christ and the church, then it's easier to see Solomon's I guess, because it's not about real love. Now, Solomon is a collector, according to First Kings, of songs. He wrote, I forget how many thousands of songs he wrote. So maybe this is a greatest hits of songs that he either collected or authored. And, and so in that way, you know, when it says it's a song of Solomon, that that can also be, so the, the NIV says Solomon's, makes it a possessive, but it, a song of Solomon and, and ASB does the same thing it could be about Solomon or it could be you know in the, in the voice of Solomon or it could be related to Solomon it doesn't have to be possessive
3: um, so could it be as calloused as some of his wives and concubines he's asked them to, to write poetry or write songs and I mean, here yeah. he's reading this and he's seeing that she doesn't really want him she yes. wants this love you know yeah I don't know maybe or maybe, yeah because it is there's a there is a female
0: voice in here that's you know and it, it raises all the issues of you know uh, like a me too cut thing where we see how sexual relationships can be very broken and and difficult and fraught with peril um, so to to think about Solomon as a character, as you know, he's not the best example of true love. <laughs> so that's, I think, why a lot of interpreters do it. Sometimes. Okay, well, let's keep going on
1: this, and um, we'll get more into this. Hear the voice of the young woman who delights in her man, a shepherd. Now she's not married to him yet, but it becomes clear that they're engaged and they cannot wait be together. From the introduction, the poems flow back and forth from the woman's voice to the man's, shifting from scene to scene without any kind of clear linear sequence or storyline. The poems move in these symphonic cycles and key images and ideas get repeated and developed. So, one of the basic themes uniting the poems is the intense desire that this couple has for each other, expressed through their constant seeking and finding. So after the opening poem, they're separated but on the hunt for one another. So the woman calls out or she'll wake up from a dream or go looking for her lover and more than once they'll find each other. They'll embrace and then right when things start to get a bit racy, the scene will suddenly end and the new one will start, they're separated, looking for each other, and on it goes. Another repeated theme is the joy of the couple's physical attraction for one another. So multiple times, they'll pause and describe each other with these elaborate metaphors. And here, it's very helpful to know that these images and metaphors in Hebrew poetry are not primarily visual. If you try and paint a picture of these people based on the metaphors, you (laughs) end up with something that looks very, very strange.
2: What you're supposed to
1: do is... So, this
0: is something that I've noticed, you know, and we used to talk about it in college dorm room and stuff as we read. uh of songs, you know, your nose is like the Tower of David, you know. Isn't that a real compliment? Um, but, yeah, and the flocks of goats and everything. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's very interesting to read them and, and try to take them literally. And, and it's interesting that the... The allegorical interpretation throughout church history—they got really specific about these metaphors. So there's something about, you know, um, you're like a bag of perfume between my breasts or something like that. And so the church history there's an interpretation that says that's about Jesus is the bag of perfume and the breasts are the Old Testament and the New Testament. <laughs> so there we go. I mean. <laughs> I mean, with, and we're going to talk about the history of why <laughs> the church felt forced to read that. And it would kind of be a fun exercise. I don't think we're going to do it next week, but um, of going through and trying to figure out what's an allegorical meaning of these details or something, but um, interesting, but um, it's all good
1: meanings of these images as they relate to the man and the woman. So you'll read through the poetic cycles, and the tension will keep building and their desire and joy and attraction, and this spiraling repetition is a poetic way of heightening and focusing on the mystery and power of sexual love. It all comes together in the conclusion, which pauses to summarize what these poems are all about. Love is as strong as death. Its passions are as severe as the grave. Its flashes are of fire a divine flame. Many waters cannot extinguish love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, he would be utterly scorned. The poem highlights the power and the intensity of love, how it's both beautiful but also dangerous. Like fire, love can destroy people if it's abused or be life-giving if it's protected. Ultimately, love expresses the insatiable human longing to know and be fully known and desired by another. Love is one of the most transcendent and mysterious experiences in human life, and as a part of the Bible's wisdom tradition, this book says it's a gift from God. After this, there's an odd poem about Solomon trying to do what the previous poem just said was impossible, to buy love. The woman rejects Solomon's offer, and then the book concludes, with the man and the woman, they're separate once more on the hunt for each other. He calls to hear her voice, she begs him to run away with her, and that's how the book ends. It's totally open-ended. But that's a lot like love, which never truly concludes, because there's always more to discover and pursue in your beloved. And so true love has no end, and neither does this book. Now through history, the big question raised by the Song of Songs is what on earth is love poetry doing in the Bible? There have been three main interpretations of this book throughout history. In Jewish tradition, it's been read as an allegory, each character a symbol. So the woman is Israel, the man is God, and their love is a symbol of the covenant between God and Israel made at Mount Sinai in the giving of the Torah. This view flowed into the Christian tradition, but the characters were swapped. So it's about Christ's love for his people church. And this interpretation was inspired by Paul's words in Ephesians 5 that a Christian husband's love for his wife is a symbol of Christ's love for the church. What's interesting is that in the last hundred years, archaeological discoveries among Israel's ancient neighbors in Egypt and Babylon has turned up all kinds of ancient love poetry that's very similar in language and imagery to the Song of Songs. We see that love poetry was a meaningful part of Israel's cultural environment. Which has led most scholars today to view the Song of Songs as what it presents itself to be an arrangement of Israelite love poetry reflecting on the divine gift of love. But, That doesn't mean that it's only ancient love poetry. There's a key feature of these poems that sticks out when you read them as a part of the Old Testament, and that's the overwhelming use of garden imagery. There are powerful echoes of the Garden of Eden and the idyllic scene between the married couple in the early chapters of Genesis. So the image of the man and the woman naked and vulnerable but completely unified and safe with one another this resonates in the background of the Song of Songs. It's as if in these poems we are witnessing the love of a couple whose relationship is untainted by selfishness and sin. And so ultimately the song holds out hope. That even though our own relationships are so often distorted by selfishness, love is a transcendent gift. And it's meant to point us to something greater, to the gift of God's love that will one day permeate and transform His beloved world. And that's what the Song of Songs is all about. All right, so we'll a lot to chew
0: on there. Um, so I'm going to give us some time to discuss this amongst yourselves. Um, let's see. Um, one of the things I noticed, I was looking at the NIV Study Bible introduction to this, and this is a, a line from, you know, this is a conservative study Bible, but. The subtle delicacy with which the writer evokes intense sensuous awareness while avoiding crude titillation is one of the chief marks of his achievement. And, man, how... We could wish that Hollywood would would do the same thing. Um, So, um, a lot of people point to these verses as kind of the key um, theme of summation. This is in the last chapter. Um... So, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, Its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. So the strength and power of love. So I would like for you to discuss your thoughts about you think this is about human love or God's love? So some of that uh, question. And then uh, in the video I mentioned that, that love can be like fire, which is appropriate in its place, but very dangerous outside of its place. So um, I'm just going to give you a, a few minutes to talk amongst yourselves uh, with, with some people around you about this these verses. Um, and I know, you know, you have had a few seconds to meditate, on, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, take some time if you want to to read or scan through some of that. Um, but yeah, I'm interested to think to to talk about can we have an allegorical interpretation in addition to the literal interpretation? Um, those types of questions. So um, yeah. Uh, talk about yourselves for a little bit and then I'll come back and gather some some thoughts. All right, go. All right, so um, let's share some of this together. Uh, I'm going to start over on that side of the room. Um, somebody be a brave volunteer just share some of the things that you guys were talking about. Earlier.
2: <laughs> it's very chatty oh, group here. <laughs> I'm just exaspecting. Like I like the allegory of God being blood and surrounding us with blood. The picture of the church and him surrounding us with yeah. blood. Yeah. I can deal with that a lot better than I can. Okay. <laughs> Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: You want to say more about why? (laughs) Fair, (laughs)
2: terrible. All right.
0: Um, Yeah. And I was. uh, I just let's see if I. I wasn't planning on showing. Well, but um, I just noticed. I read through some some verses that are in songs that we sing, like Jesus Rose of Sharon and. uh, he welcomes us into his banqueting table. His banner over us is love. We sang that at church camp. That's from a song of songs. That <laughs> I didn't even know. I don't think where that was from until we read through it this time. At least it didn't click. Um, and we just kind of have parts of this in our that we just apply to, to God's love for us. Um, yeah, lily of the valley. That's. that's in this as well we read that about Jesus so. okay uh, let's go here in the middle let's start with the front middle <laughs> and,
3: and the back cause first time, first time. what do you guys talk about well one of the things I thought of through the rest of the video was is this almost a regret from Solomon that he has these a thousand women but yet he's you know as Matt said is YouTube. still has a family he's looking for. Like I mean, he's he's looking for this love, and it's all empty. Because, it, as Dia said, it kind of bleeds into that last psalm, where he even tries to buy it, and he can't get it. I mean, and so it's it's almost like he he is looking for that, and and love. At least my experience with love and marriage is that it grows. And becomes like a pocket fire. like it just gets stronger every year. But I'm not—I still struggle with that jealousy, and I think it's because mm-hmm. the word is, yeah. is, is, has a negative connotation in my head. Mm-hmm. Right. Because no one wants to be called jealous. Yeah, yeah and that's yeah—that's the question:
0: Is this a—is this kind of human love a good thing to be that you know, obsessed? <laughs> Yeah. Good. How about, yeah. Well, I like the word jealous here. So I'll pick up Dan, the popular case. Um, there's a saying when you're in law
2: school, it says the laws of a jealous mistress. And, and since we're talking about, you know, racist things. Um, <laughs> and the idea is that it's always on your mind, right? And it's, I like the idea of a jealous love, but then, you know, Context and connotation of the other person is always in front of you. Your focus is on loving them, and in this case, depending on how we use these words, right? It is a beautiful verse, um, and it's it's a reminder of what we should be. I am biased. This is this verse is actually inscribed on the inside of my
0: wedding ring, so um, so I'm definitely going to go with the positive. <laughs> <laughs> I like the word jealousy. Do you have the whole, all these verses? I have massive (laughs) hands. Very small. Um,
2: Yeah, and I
0: know that, at least in Greek, jealous and zealous are related. So it just has to do with the strength of passion. Good. Um, Otherwise, in the middle. Thoughts?
2: I like, I actually kind of prefer to think of it just as simply love poetry and not some An
0: allegory? allegory, I mean, I think you can take something that was written as love poetry and apply meaning to it, which I think is fine, but in some ways, I think this is just love poetry,
2: yeah, I
0: have been in a few youth group settings where they've taken a popular song that's about mm-hmm. secular <laughs> love and, and Turn it into a worship song. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always like, Let's try it. <laughs> what was that song we yeah. used
3: to sing? I've got a peaceful, easy feeling. Yeah, yeah, right.
0: Yeah, we used to turn that into a worship song. Actually, Actually the Beatles, Beatles released a song about that, that last right. uh,
3: verse in 2064. The yeah, Beatles. I me mean, love.
2: Okay. <laughs> I'll buy you a diamond ring my friend If it makes you feel alright I'll <laughs> give you anything my friend If it makes you feel alright Because I don't care too much for, for money That's, That's true it. It's this brush, right
0: there, right there. <laughs> You can marry for love but you pay for it I, I said
2: you, you
0: can so One of my friends would say you can fall in love with a rich man's Quick as you
1: can fall, a Corbin. And I would say, if you marry for love, you earn everything. Oh. <laughs> <And>, uh, <laughs> yeah. If you don't marry for love, you don't. Yeah. If you don't marry for love, you earn
2: everything. I'm sorry. Yeah.
0: Well, if you do marry for love.
3: No. If you don't, if you marry someone you don't love, but you married them
0: for money. Oh. You um, marry you for money. You,
3: if you marry for money, you, you earn, earn everything.
0: Okay. But you can't fall in love. <laughs> 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 this idea of falling in love well, she, it was her reason for not dating people unless they had money. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: so I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> that happens. It does.
2: Yeah.
3: <laughs> it does. But if if we if the writers or the combiners of the Bible had not had some allegory thought. Would this have been included in the
0: scripture? That's a good question. I mean the reason we have this is because of that Jewish interpretation starting off. Um, So you know and that gets into the question of uh, how many meanings can something have? Legitimate meanings. I mean um, my general rule of interpretation and this is not always agreed with in the Guild of Biblical Studies is to, to follow the golden rule which is I don't want somebody taking something I've written that I meant one way and twisting it to mean something I didn't mean, that's, that's not, I don't like that. I wouldn't want somebody to do that to me, so I'm not going to do that to the Bible. But a lot of people are okay with doing that with the Bible and say, well that's it's inspired and the Spirit's involved and so we can make it mean different things, and I'm like, oh. But, uh, so I'm, I'm more, I guess, conservative on that, that same point. Yes. Well, and there is precedent in the Old Testament and New Testament for taking human love and making an allegory. Like Hosea,
2: I mean, it's pretty explicit. Like, we're going to have this human relationship, and that's really an allegory for, you know, our relationship with God. So I feel like it's not just out of, completely out of line to take this or that. And even, but I think it's problematic sometimes, because
1: even the Ephesians 5 chapter where Paul, again, explicitly says, this is really about us and God,
0: like, we still totally interpret it as marriage passage. Because yeah, I keep thinking, why do people keep
2: reading these weddings? Because Paul's saying this is allegorical. The right. Is the and I've never heard an actual right. sermon on that. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's not that you can't, I mean, obviously, with allegory, you can take it on both levels. But um, I think it's hard for us to to do that simultaneously. Yeah. So let me choose one over the other. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's true. And that's a, he does say, doesn't he, it's, This is mysterious. And so the punch of mystery.
3: The one person who's single says it's a mystery.
0: Yeah, Paul. Maybe single. You don't say (laughs) How convenient. Okay, good. Um, How about this side of the room? You guys want to share what you guys talked about? Anything to add? I think it's love poetry. It's interesting that it.
2: That it occurs and is still connected to Solomon, mm-hmm. who had so many women, wives, concubines, mm-hmm. and so forth, and yet the love poetry appears to be confined to about three people, mm-hmm. and, the, and she and he, the lovers, one yeah. couple. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's why the video tried to set it in the context of. Biblical narrative more broadly, and that begins with Genesis and creation, where there's two little men man and a woman together. It's a married couple. When oh, did they get married? Uh, you know, but, but we, yeah, they're married, right? I guess. Uh, they've got to be married, right? I, I don't know. I don't know why you even ask that question. Okay, uh, but they're, you know, here's here's actually
3: someone created for you, um, and they that were born. I think they're waiting until the, the dripping mouth got fixed, and then the honey mouth got fixed, and then they're going to get married. So.
0: And then, um, so, but as we were discussing up here, you know the and it's becoming more of an issue in our modern culture about polyamory and what does the Bible really say about this, and, and there is no, since the Bible is a lot of story and narrative, you do have narratives about people being married to more than one person, um, polygamy. And I and I was saying what it's it never really is a great thing, especially for the women in those relationships. It's never great. And God intervenes and in, to get the twelve children of Israel, you know, this this spouse is unloved, they get more kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so the narrative, I think we could make the case that the narrative is has been rightly understood through Christian tradition of one one man, one woman for life, but that, that is a, it's not a command necessarily. Dale, were you gonna say something? Personally, it is more comfortable to me to
2: see this as an endorsement of the guilt of sex. I, I feel the allegory to seem seems and I think yeah. there is few behaviors that human beings have messed up more regularly yeah. than sexual behaviors. And I think this is God's
0: um, saying, this is what I, I
2: intended for this to be a beautiful gift, and this is what it is. And, and I think it's very uh, affirming and protective of women. And so mm-hmm. I really like to it better. To that yeah, way.
0: that's a good point, because the woman's voice is very strong in this, mm-hmm. which is a I think, to be noted. Um, Yeah, that's very well said. Um, What I would like to share with you is, as we keep thinking about this, is I was reading from a commentary by Ian Proven, who I think is British, uh, from 2001, and I just have some quotes from this commentary that I thought were really good and may generate some thought and discussion here. Um, he says, Historically, there have been two primary ways in which the Song of Songs have been read by Jews and Christians, as a text that concerns the love and sexual intimacy of human beings and as a text that uses the language of human love and enemies to speak of something else, the relationship between God and Israel, perhaps, or between Christ and the Church, or individual members of the Church, including the Virgin Mary. These two ways of reading have commonly been referred to as a literal and the allegorical, respectively. Um and the Council of Constantinople in five fifty famously and I didn't know it, and how famous is it, I've never heard of this outlawed the literal reading of the Song of Songs altogether, enshrining the allegorical interpretation henceforth as the only right interpretation. <laughs> so the church
3: um, sounds like a real fun group of dudes. <laughs>
0: Thou shalt not read the Song of Songs unless thou take it allegorically. And oh yeah, I was going to say on this moment. if you were writing an allegory, if that was the original author's intention, very strange way to do it. I mean, it just doesn't work well. You know, so is in this interpreted as critical sex theory? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> and I know in Jewish, I think I read somewhere in Jewish culture, you had to be thirty to read the Song of Songs. 30 years old. Which only ensures that the hippie kids were sure to read it. The Jewish kids were all, the teenagers were getting together. And grabbing the scroll, the one scroll that was always missing. <laughs> <laughs> um, continuing resistance to the liberal reading seems often to have been grounded not so much in any deep initial conviction that the book was originally intended to be read allegorically, but in the belief that the content, if read literally, would indeed be obscene and therefore problematic for the Christian. Now this is talking about Christian history like Middle Ages and prior. Um, This latter belief being culturally rather than biblically rooted has increasingly come to be questioned as time has passed and as readers have asked why a description of human love and sexual intimacy should trouble a Christian reader. So we're at a different point where uh, different readings of this are possible because we're more comfortable with this being a, a literal book about sex. But it, it's super interesting to me to think about how, this, how these moods have happened. Uh, this is a long one. I know this is poor PowerPoint uh, methodology, but I'm just going to do this uh, to get it out there. Uh, The Bible teaches us of a creation that is good and of a sexuality that is a hallowed aspect of what is good, Genesis 1. It knows that sexuality is touched by sin and damaged, as are all aspects of creation. But redemption, biblically, is not about escape from createdness; It is about the restoration of the image of God and human beings, as well as the renewal of all creation. Such restoration involves, at least on this side of eternity, the restoration of sexuality and sexual expression as it should be under God. Very interesting to me, and I don't have this worked out, but Jesus says that we will be like the angels when he's asked about, you know, who's going to be your spouse in heaven if they going be married to seven different people. We'll be like the angels, neither marrying, marrying or giving in marriage. So Jesus says something about the idea that marriage is not forever... Maybe, but then I just don't know what to do with that because we're supposed to live now. I mean, part of the, our way of framing eschatology now is we're supposed to live now the way we're going to be in the new heavens and the new mm-hmm. earth, but that means no marriage, um, which nobody really agrees shakers. to. But, <laughs> but yeah, Shakers, uh, you can do that for one generation, and <laughs> then what do you do? Um, but, okay. Um, <laughs> um, biblical thinking about redemption thus involves no great dichotomy between creation and redemption or between body and soul it does not know of any future life with God in fact it does not entail the resurrection of the body so I think this um, more accurate reading of the Bible less platonically where it's, where the Bible is all about saving souls and it's more about bodily a restoration and salvation of salvation is not just about saving your soul it's about <laughs> holistic salvation um, helps us with reading this uh, he has so many good quotes uh, we do not need to choose between literal and allegorical interpretation of the song of Songs as early generations of christian writers felt they had to there's no good reason to see erotic earthly love as problematic either in itself his ability to speak by analogy of a divine-human relationship. So in that commentary, he argues that we can have both readings. Not in the sense of the details, um, but in the general sense of the idea of love. So every theologian you ever read says the basic message of the Bible is about love. Uh, I've read that so many times, I don't want to say, well, okay, well, Becomes like a truism or something, but but if I think it's worthy of thought that 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 is our view of God's way of God set up the world is that it, it entails that there is this love, love is part of creation, part of, and that's maybe he he in this commentary has a few statements, and I'm not gonna, I have a bunch on there, but um. It it can become, and we might critique our society's, you know, the bachelor fascination with one man, one woman, and this person's going to fix everything, and your life is really not meaningful until you find this person. All those things are negative, I think, um, and need to be spoken against. We do have Jesus and Paul not married um who are vital members of the church and we need to as a church affirm all those things for for those who are single um while at the same time you can have love relationships that go beyond marriage so. what do you guys think yeah well, your nephew was even told we hired you but you're not married yeah and that's really sad yeah he wants to be a minister in a church but he's single he's, 30 now 30 mm-hmm. so Paul Paul says 1st Corinthians 7 it's better not to be married
3: and what is it <laughs> sorry <laughs> <laughs> put the <up>, soapbox <laughs> at least for ministry
0: I mean I yeah well, one of the, the churches greatest
3: there. prophets and preachers Landon in Solomon yeah mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. I think Going back a few slides, that <clears throat> us not talking, them, them concerned about the obscene, or you know, the us not talking about it creates a bigger problem than us talking about it in the context of this is God given. Yes. Because when you when you set, when you remove it from context, when you remove it from the fact that this is God given, then what you're saying is that this is worldly. Yeah. And that the world controls it. But we should be taught and we should be teaching others that this is God given. God yeah. God gives you this within the parameters of what God gives you.
2: Yeah.
3: And does somebody
0: famously I don't know Somebody said, you know, that what they grew up in church hearing is sex is dirty and nasty and awful and you should save it for someone you really love. <laughs> and that's, you know, so, such a mixed message that we have given our kids. Uh, and he says, one of the sad features of church history is that Christians have sometimes managed all too successfully to promote the agenda of the serpent and the of Eden, rather than to advertise the kingdom of God. That is, we have presented God to the world, whether consciously or not, as a God of unreasonable prohibition. Did God really say you should not eat from every tree in the garden? You know, that's how the temptation starts. Rather than as a God who blesses us with freedom, you are free to eat from every tree. Um, so, yeah, that I think we could do some discussion about how the church has dealt
2: with sexual. This, sexual this becomes a current
0: problem when
2: you see uh, Christian dominionist trying to take over state legislatures yeah. and, and pass laws to say that everybody must believe as Christians believe, and right. as Christians they simply mean themselves,
0: yeah. you know, yeah. they mean, frankly, yeah. the Southern Baptist. How you get into <laughs> legislating morality is
2: yeah.
0: Alright, well, we've uh, kicked over a lot of cans here, we have one more week to discuss uh, so we'll meet next Sunday. Will be our last Sunday for this class because the last Sunday of the month, I'll be at church again with middle schoolers. So pray for me. <laughs> uh, but uh, so, so next Sunday we'll come back to Song of Songs. I, my idea is that we'll kind of go through some more of the details of the text and we'll give you a chance to talk about them with each other. All right. Thank you very much for being here and your discussion today. Thank you for that. Thank you. I like that.